I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, Bunker Mentality, a journalist takes us inside a courthouse fortified as a verdict finally comes down in the years-long and deadly trial of a Dutch drug cartel leader and his accomplices. Bench strength. Doug Ford says he's looking to appoint what he calls like-minded judges, but a criminal defense lawyer warns that politicizing Canada's courts could come back to haunt the Ontario Premier. Set in stones, more than a century after 19 black soldiers were executed in Texas, the U.S. Army admits their trials were unjust and updates their headstones to reflect that injustice. Too mushy for the mushers. In the midst of an unusually unsnowy winter, a dog sled race in Maine is cancelled for the first time in its 30-year run. He had a lot of plans in the hoppers. The winner of this year's Dance Your PhD contest spent years studying kangaroos, and then he shook things up by shaking his thing up and down and sideways. And like faking candy for a baby. In Glasgow, Willie's chocolate experience promised children a tour through a wonderland of sweets, but turned out to be a debacle that left everyone feeling extremely salty. As it happens, the Tuesday edition radio that urges the culprits to make a full confection. It's a criminal trial that has captivated the Dutch public for six years. And today, after one of the most extensive cases in the history of the Netherlands, a court sentenced the drug cartel leader Ridwan Tahi to life in prison. Sixteen other gang members received lengthy prison terms. The case involved half a dozen murders, attempted murders, and other planned hit operations. During the hearings for the trial, gang members were accused of orchestrating three more killings. One of the dead was a lawyer for a cooperating witness. Another was a well-known journalist who was in contact with the witness. Molly Quell is a reporter with Courthouse News who's been covering the trial. We reached her in Delft in the Netherlands. Molly, the fact that there was a separate special courthouse for this case certainly tells us something. But just describe what it's like there. This trial has been taking place in um, a high security facility, which is known as the bunker, um, which I think sort of makes people perhaps think about some sort of military installation. But it is, in fact, a former clothing warehouse on an industrial terrain on the outskirts of Amsterdam. It is constantly surrounded by military police when the court is in session for this trial. Uh, it's a lot of guys with you know big guns and ski masks on, so you can only see their eyes. The court has asked the media not to identify the prosecutors or the judges because of the security concerns. So as that verdict was yet, read, what happened? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it was particularly surprising, to be honest. I mean, the evidence against Tahi is quite um, extensive. He is involved in a number of other crimes in a, in a story that I did earlier this year when I was speaking to the Public Prosecution Service. You know, they sort of said that they 
kind of charged him with the easiest to convict crimes. There's there's many more things that they could have charged him with, many more murders and many more sort of other illegal activities. It was sort of interesting because uh, sometimes when Dutch judges read out criminal verdicts, they like to kind of go through all of the thought processes and then get to the verdicts. So sometimes you sit there for maybe an hour, an hour and a half where you kind of listen to them talk about the evidence. Um, but in this case, they just sort of went for it and kind of announced quite early on in the, yeah. the hearing today that they were giving a life sentence to Tahi and two of the co-defendants. Six years, as we mentioned in the introduction, this trial has been dragging on. But organized crime itself is is not new to the Netherlands. There have been Dutch, uh, you know, leaders of, of these gangs, Dutch gangsters. What is different this time that has that has taken this long and captivated the country? I mean, I think that the the Willem Holleder trial, so Holleder was a Dutch um, kind of underworld kingpin who I think maybe is most famous for kidnapping the heir to the Heineken fortune in the, the 80s. And then there was like a huge manhunt extradition thing for him. He was also convicted of five murders. Um, this was a few years ago. And that was also a trial that quite got quite a lot of attention. So, I mean, I think like everywhere, you know, there is some interest kind of in these these criminal organizations. I think what's really attracted a lot of attention here is kind of the extensiveness of which these criminal networks operated for a long time. Um, in 2016, Dutch and Canadian authorities um, decrypted these text messages that sort of showed just kind of how big these networks were that were kind of bringing cocaine into Europe and to selling it. And um, so that, I think, kind of shocked people. And then during the process of this trial, as you mentioned, it was, you know, six years going during that process. There was three more murders in connection with this. There was the brother of the crown witness um, who was killed, the crown witness's lawyer who was also killed. And then a Dutch journalist um, who was working with the case was also assassinated sort of in broad daylight. You just keep having these kind of headline grabbing moments. Right. It was like the first time, I think, in in a really long time, if ever, that the Dutch had had a, a sort of lawyer that was associated with a criminal case be assassinated, also in broad daylight in front of his home. Um, and then this very famous journalist um, was was shot and killed on the street in Amsterdam. Peter de Vries was his name, and we, we've covered uh, his, uh, his murder. But as a journalist covering this trial and knowing that a journalist was targeted, albeit someone closer to the case, did that change how you covered this trial? I mean, I don't think I've ever felt personally sort of threatened. I, you know, I don't do this kind of investigative work, um, but colleagues of mine who sort of work for Dutch newspapers who do do a lot of this stuff have had police protection. And sometimes when you see them, they have police with them because threats have been made on their lives. And I think it kind of makes you as a journalist, a little more cognizant sort of of what you're saying and kind of makes you think a little bit about maybe do, do you want to write this other, this other story um, about this. And I think everyone is somewhat hopeful that we'll see a bit less of that now that these guys have all been convicted. Is there a sense, though, that this has actually made a dent in organized crime in the Netherlands or have other figures already taken over as often is the case? Yeah, well, and I think that, you know, the fact that these these murders that we were just talking about continued to happen while these defendants were all in, I mean, they've all been in pretrial detention. So in theory, they shouldn't be able to be continuing to orchestrate, you know, assassinations. But 
that has happened from behind bars. So I'm not sure how confident anybody feels necessarily that this is kind of going to solve the problem. But I do think that there is a bit of a sense of relief that this, at least this particular sort of chapter of it is is at least closed for the moment. The background of, of the people who, who've been convicted now uh, has, you know, as we talk about the fact that there was organized crime before, but uh, they were they were people who were born in the Netherlands. Have you seen a shift in the way the public is reacting to this case? I ask because I wonder if it's having an impact on very innocent people uh, across the country as well. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely been a lot of allegations, I think, against this group. They've kind of gained the nickname the Marco Mafia because they are either born in the Morocco or of, you know, sort of Moroccan descent. I think there's been quite a few sort of, you know, racist allegations about how they're somehow more violent or more dangerous. I mean, I, I think that this is very clearly not true. I mean, the sort of Dutch-born criminal we were just speaking about, Willem Holleder, I mean, had his own brother-in-law assassinated in front of his sister like in Amsterdam in the 80s. So, I mean, that's a you know, particularly ugly bit of violence. Um, but yeah, there certainly is a lot of discussion about that. And I don't think that it helps, yeah, disenfranchised communities sort of having these guys' names constantly in the headlines. Molly, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Molly Quell is a reporter with Courthouse News. We reached her in Amsterdam. This month at Fort Sam Houston National Cemetery in Texas, a headstone was unveiled for Private First Class Thomas C. Hawkins, who died more than 100 years ago and not in battle. Private Hawkins was one of 19 black soldiers who were hanged following a deadly riot in 1917 that left over a dozen people dead. It's been described as the largest mass execution of American soldiers by the U.S. Army. The unveiling of the new headstones comes after the army overturned his conviction and those of more than 100 other black soldiers, saying they were, quote, wrongly treated because of their race and were not given fair trials, unquote. New Jersey attorney Jason Holt is Thomas C. Hawkins's nephew. We reached him in Roseland, New Jersey. Jason, I wonder what do you see when you look at that new headstone for your uncle now? I see his legacy, his hard work and sacrifice. I see the sacrifice of his family, our family. I see the years that have transpired since 1917. And I look at it with wonder, sadness, and awe. Your son, who is 20 years old, I believe, was with you at the unveiling. How did he take in that ceremony? What did he tell you about what it was like to be there with you? He found it to be an honor. He thought that it was very moving. And it surprised me to some extent because when you're 20 years old, your mind is focused on so many different things. And for him to have an appreciation of the magnitude of the event and actually for him just to be there with me was very special. You and other descendants, other family members have been working towards this point for quite some time. What was it like throughout all of those years to know something that that so many people are only just learning about through the news coverage in the United States and conversations like the one we're having now? 
In many instances, it's like standing in a crowded room trying to yell out, look, see what's taking place, but no one will see. And as things have progressed over the years, it allowed the focus to shift and for folks to actually begin to see and appreciate the event for what it was, a real tragedy. And if you take the largest military court martial in the history of the United States and combine it and make it the largest murder trial in the history of the United States, and then make it the largest mass execution of American soldiers in the continental United States, it deserves some attention and it deserves some attention by everyone that has a sense of what is right and what is just. It is staggering and chilling uh, to, to read the details. If, if we go back in time, these soldiers were, were sent to Houston. What kind of reception did these soldiers receive when they arrived, these black soldiers? Well, the people of color that were in the town, they were well received and formed an instant bond with folks from the other community that still had in place the Jim Crow segregationist laws, they weren't very well received at all. But from the standpoint of being a soldier and you're wearing the uniform and wearing the cloth of the United States, you are being confronted at various points in time by other people in uniform. You feel as though you are an equal of everyone that is there. You have on a uniform, I have on a uniform. And not to be treated as equals, particularly after you've been in military campaigns in different parts of the world, is really not a positive feeling and you are going to respond appropriately. What was what do you know about what your uncle was accused of doing? He was accused of mutiny, murder, and some other charges that were lesser than those two, but those were the main ones. The Army last year, uh, before these new headstones were unveiled uh, more recently, last year, they set the soldiers' convictions aside, granted honorable discharges to, quote, acknowledge past mistakes. Do you feel that there is a deep enough acknowledgement uh, of that now? Well, balancing the scales is tough. And I don't know if the scales are balanced, but certainly the acknowledgement by the Army that it was a miscarriage of justice is a tremendous step forward. Can you tell me what you know about your uncle? I mean, he's associated with this horrific moment in American history. But what do you know about what he was like, why he wanted to be a soldier? Well, I can tell you a few things. Uh, he's basically a farm boy from North Carolina. He was very religious because his grandfather was a preacher and he was brought up as a Christian. And you can tell that by his letters that he wrote home. And your family kept the letter he wrote just before he was hanged. I wonder if you could read just part of it for us. This letter is is drafted or written December 11th, 1917. It says, Dear Mother and Father, when this letter reaches you, I will be beyond the veil of sorrow. I will be in heaven with the angels. 
Mother, don't worry over your son because it is heaven's gain. Look not upon my body as one that must fill a watery grave, but one that is asleep in Jesus. I fear not death. Did not Jesus ask, death, where art thy sting? Don't regret my seat in heaven by mourning over me. I now can imagine seeing my dear grandmother and grandfather and the dear girl, Miss Bessie Henderson, that I once loved in this world, standing at the river of Jordan, beckoning to me to come. And oh, mother, should they be sensitive of my coming? Don't you think that they are anxious for tomorrow morning to come when I will come unto them? I am sentenced to be hanged for the trouble that happened in Houston, Texas, although I am not guilty of the crime that I am accused of. But mother, it is God's will that I go now and in this way. You have read and reread that letter um, hundreds of times, I'm sure, over the years. You, as we've mentioned with the other families, have been fighting to get recognition for years as well. So now that this part of, of that fight is, is over, what will you do next? Or are you able to, to move on, do you think? Or is there more work for you to do? Well, the journey for justice is always there. So I'm not looking for a cause or anything. For the time being, I just want to absorb what has happened, be grateful for what has happened, and just be thankful. If you talk to me in about six months or so, perhaps I'll have some additional thoughts on that particular topic. Jason, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. No, thank you. That was Jason Holt in Roseland, New Jersey. Backup dancers are great, but you know what's cooler? Backup kangaroos. The video for the song Kangaroo Time does have backup dancers, and they're great. There are drag queens, ballerinas, and twerking. But unlike most club tracks, it also has kangaroos. So, why does the singer want to tell us what he learned in his kangaroo time? Well, because he did his thesis on animal behavior, and he is the winner of this year's Dance Your PhD contest, which is exactly what it sounds like, doctoral candidates distilling their years of painstaking research into a short dance video. We reached Wellington Minario Costa, known musically as Welly, in Sydney, Australia. Welly, you've said that winning this contest felt like winning the Eurovision Song Contest. Why? 
Uh, it's such a big achievement for the country. It's an international competition, and it's very popular in Europe as well. Within the the academic community, a hundred percent is just like the most exciting times uh, for us. It was very special for me taking this prize to Australia, even though I'm Brazilian. <laughs> the video, I you know, I, I just watched it. The production value is is off the charts. But what was it like? You know, you, it's an original song that you wrote. How, though, mm-hmm. did you translate three years of your life and your academic work into a music video? What was that like? Uh, there was a most, most uh, I don't want to say fun because it was a lot of work and technical work and involving professionals as well. But it was one of the most interesting, immersive, creative experiences of my life. My PhD helped a lot because I knew really well my thesis. I had chatted about my thesis to so many people already so i knew well what resonated with people particularly after i finished the phd i got to to talk a lot to to my thesis to my friends that are not academic mm-hmm. particularly because i quit academia after i finished the phd i still worked in science for about a year and a half but in the technical side and I started pursuing more my creative career. So with dancing, singing, performing, and my friends were just like finding out that I was a kangaroo doctor. And I was like, oh, this is the <laughs> coolest thing. Can you tell a, a little bit? So I was just like really good at pitching my PhD. Yeah. So I had a very clear idea of what results I want to convey in the video. And I, because I, I was involved in this creative space as well, I knew a lot of people who would be yeah. keen to hop in literally. And that's how we got the video going. Ultimately, what do you want people to take away from your years of research on kangaroos? Well, in terms of the scientific findings of the kangaroos, I I feel like a lot of the Australians, they do not know so much about kangaroos. And I'm 100% sure they're not going to read my thesis or any other of the papers on kangaroos. So I think seeing the music video was this big responsibility for me. And when I was thinking of what to say, I want to talk to the whole nation as well. The main finding is kangaroos do have personalities just like us humans. And that means they behave different from each other. And you expect from an individual a more consistent response as well across time. But then when they're in groups and in social environments, and I think that's the biggest take, they tend to adjust that behavior. So the personality is still there. It's still influencing the behavior. But what's more important is what everybody does in a group. So they adjust a lot to the behavior of everybody and that adjustment is also democratic so it doesn't matter if you're male or female or if you're older or younger or if you're an individual with a more extreme personality everybody adjusts to each other so that was very interesting to learn we've done some stories where kangaroos were very frightening uh, as well but it's much more fun in your video does kangaroo time also mean something personal for you Oh, kangaroo time is a celebration of the time I I came to Australia. It's the time I was queer for the first time in my workspace, that I came out to my family, that I've connected more with the parts I liked about my culture because I had left it. So I moved from Brazil and I came to Australia and then here there were parts of my culture I started learning that I really loved because I missed it so much and I start getting more connected to it, particularly with the dancing and the singing. So it's really about 
being able to reconnect to myself, to learn more, uh, more about myself. And it's all, in a way, influencing how I wrote the song. So the beat that makes up a little bit of club, makes up um, a disco with references in, in village people. So it's kind of like a <laughs> queer anthem. Yeah. But it has some Latin influences from Brazilian funk as well. So the main beat is to 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 which is the club, and then we have like to ta 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 ta, which is the Brazilian beat. Welly, a pleasure speaking with you. Congratulations, and I hear you have some new music coming out. So congrats on that too. Good luck. A hundred percent. Just this Friday. Make sure you guys check it out. Welly on Spotify, and yours academically. Doctor Welly is the name of the of the EP. I'm so excited. The best track is called El Doctor. It's a reggaeton. It's still very multicultural. El, do- El Doctor. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Neil. Bye bye. Wellington Minario Costa, also known as Welly, is the winner of this year's Dance Your PhD contest. He's in Sydney, Australia. They were hoping for this. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. But what they got was this. They only wanted a chance to recreate this moment. So shines a good deed in a weary world. Charlie! My boy. You won! You did it! You did it! I knew you would! I just knew you would! But they wound up experiencing this moment instead. You get nothing! You lose! Good day, sir! In retrospect, there were signs that Willie's chocolate experience was not going to be a world of pure imagination, or rather, I guess that it would be a world of pure imagination in the sense that you would have to conjure up something less depressing in your mind. For example, everything on the website was clearly created by artificial intelligence. The pictures are colorful depictions of candy, but the AI-generated text is more problematic given that it promises enshrining entertainment, carchy tons, XR surgery lollipops and a paradise of sweet teats. Still, this past weekend in Glasgow, people paid the equivalent of 60 bucks to enter the immersive experience described on the website as a chocolate fantasy like never before. But uh, which was actually a mostly empty warehouse containing a sparse assortment of wobbly-looking props, a rainbow, a candy cane, a giant lollipop. There was a, a bouncy castle, capacity 12, and there were actors who, for legal reasons, were not called Oompa Loompas, but were wearing green wigs and looking deeply uncomfortable. 
One performer who'd been hired for the event told The Guardian, we were told to hand the kids a couple of jelly beans and a quarter cup of lemonade at the end. This was not a chocolate fantasy like never before. This made dozens of children cry and in turn their parents who called the police and are now demanding refunds because nobody likes to look at or be a giant sucker. I do highly recommend that you find pictures of Willie's chocolate experience online. Quarter cup of lemonade? A quarter cup not of lemonade half, and not... two jelly beans. Note the complete absence of chocolate. Was there, yeah. Was there any chocolate? <laughs> I don't think Good so. day, sir. Oh, those clips take me back. <laughs> Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandavale disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. Doug Ford is not shying away from suggestions that he plans to appoint judges along party lines. Quite the contrary. Today in Toronto, the Ontario Premier said he was, quote, tripling down on controversial comments he made last Friday after it was reported that he had named two former staffers to the body that helps select judicial nominees. Here are some of the comments that kicked up the fuss. I'm not going to uh, appoint some NDP or some uh, liberal. I've made it very clear where I stand with judges. Uh, justice, justice of the pieces, uh, justice of the peace, and judges—they're letting criminals out. These, these guys are kicking in doors, putting guns to uh, people's heads, handing over the keys. And guess what? When we catch them, we find out that they're out on bail for eight times. I'm pointing like-minded people that believe in what we believe in, keeping the bad guys in jail, and uh, I'm proud of the job that they're doing. Ontario Premier Doug Ford on Friday. Those comments and his new ones today have drawn the fire of civil liberties and legal organizations. Adam Weisberg is the vice president of the Criminal Lawyers Association. We reached him in Toronto. Adam, I'm sure you've heard those words a few times now. As a lawyer, though, uh, how do those words sit with you? I mean, it's all very disheartening, the politicalization of judicial appointments. And it's very much misguided, and it's not going to have the effect that Premier Ford intends. Uh, I think most people um, in in the uh, legal community think it's going to have one effect, and that's going to be lowering the quality of future appointments and lowering the public's opinion of the future appointments. Were you surprised I, to hear those statements? A little bit shocked that uh, he would come out and say, I'm trying to put my finger on the scales of justice. I'm trying to appoint like-minded judges. And the real problem here is we've had the Judicial Advisory Appointments Committee for over 30 years, uh, and it's been kind of the gold standard of how to appoint independent, fair, uh, intelligent, highly qualified judges. And all he's doing is gutting that committee that has been very successful and lauded worldwide. Ford has also been suggesting, though, that that other parties do the same thing and have done the same thing. Well, other parties allowed the Jack Committee to function for the last 30 years without interfering with it, without trying to politicize it, without putting their fingers on the scale. 
and I don't even think, quite frankly, this is going to have the the effect he's hoping for. Um, because I can I can tell you that some of the toughest as nails prosecutors I dealt with early in my career, um, who were very conservative, went on to become judges, and they applied the law in a very fair, consistent manner. And it's a pleasure to appear before them. So just because someone has a conservative background doesn't mean what Premier Ford thinks, that they're going to come forward and, and apply justice in an uneven manner that's heavy on crime, that does all the things he thinks they will. Uh, quite frankly, they're going to apply the law correctly. The problem here is, though, by narrowing the candidates, he's not going to have the same high quality of candidates with a diversity of perspectives. And he's encouraging the dismantling of Jack by, you know, stuffing it with his former staffers, by allowing him to go deeper into the pool, by now saying publicly he just wants like-minded conservative mm-hmm. judges. What's going to happen when the next party's in power? Are we going to trust the Liberals or the NDP to restore the Jack Committee to its former glory? Or are they going to start playing games too and interfering with the independence of judges by only selecting their party members? Mm, the Premier has appointed two of his staffers. We should tell our listeners, if, if they're just getting up to speed on the story, two of his staffers to that body that selects potential <clears throat> judges. In that clip, he's also suggesting the Premier is that the people are, are you know, being let go or getting off will, willy-nilly and going on to commit many other crimes, even if they have a long history. What are your members, other lawyers, telling you? Is that the reality? There, There is, from my perspective, there has been a recent increase in crime. And I think you can look at the, the statistics for that. And a lot of it has to do with coming out of the pandemic, inflation. Uh, there's a lot of pressure um, on the system. And one of the things that you have to consider when you look at the, the scale or, or everything involved is, is, is appointing judges that you think are conservative-minded the right way to deal with that? Or is it dealing with your prosecutors, your attorney general, and affecting crown policy, and then the federal government legislating crimes and legislating uh, things that are tougher on crime policy? Interfering with the judicial independence is not mm-hmm. uh, the correct way to go, and it's completely misguided. Why do you think he's saying this so explicitly now? I, I, I mean, we always suspected this is what he was doing as as, um, as lawyers and part of the Criminal Lawyers Association. Um, we're all surprised that he's coming out and, and bluntly saying, this is what I'm trying to do. And like I've been saying, in my opinion, it's completely misguided and it's not even going to have the effect he wants. Mm-hmm. The, the effect it's going to have is his comments are going to make his future appointments seem lesser uh, to seem in the opinion of the public as biased, uh, and he's going to affect the um, whole purpose of the Jack Committee um, by reducing the potential quality of the candidates, because he's going to be overlooking uh, exceptional judicial candidates because he's not aware that they're conservatives or that they've, they um, have these conservative values. And I think uh, Ontarians should be concerned. I know your organization has, has written a letter and copied Premier Ford's Attorney General uh, as well. Can you actually have a, a, an impact, though? What can you really do if he's decided that this is the course they're going to take? I, I think the Criminal Lawyers Association, our responsibility is to, to educate the public uh, in this regard that this will not work, that it's misguided, and it's going to have unintended consequences uh, to the independence of the judiciary, to the quality of judicial appointments. And our concern 
it isn't just this government, but what happens when the next government comes into power? Are they going to try to balance the scales by appointing only liberal candidates or only NDB candidates? And then we just have a situation where, where we're narrowing our pool of applicants and we're not picking the highest quality uh, judges, which is what the goal of the whole Jack committee was. And it's functioned very successfully for 30 years. And it's disappointing that he's interfering with the Judicial Advisory Appointments Committee. And it's, it's, it's not a good thing for Ontarians. And it's not a good thing for anybody. Adam, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Adam Weisberg is the vice president of the Criminal Lawyers Association. We reached him in Toronto. If things had gone according to plan, Jonathan Hayes would be entering the final days of preparation for the Can-Am Crown, the annual international dog sled race in Fort Kent, Maine. And he was preparing until yesterday morning. That's when Mr. Hayes learned that for the first time in its 30-year history, the race would not be going ahead. Officials canceled just days before the scheduled start on Friday, citing a lack of snow. We reached Jonathan Hayes in St. David, Maine. Jonathan, what were you doing when you found out the race was canceled? So I'm a school teacher, a biology teacher, so I feed my dogs at about 5 o'clock in the morning, um, their morning feed. And I was on my way to the morning feed and got a message, literally just pulled over on the side of the road and just stared at my windshield for two or three minutes because this has been every ounce of effort uh, from my team and I for the last six months, just a, a, a strong drive for this race. And then it got canceled. So I I was just sitting there, well, what do I do with myself now? <laughs> <laughs> Have you figured that out yet? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've been working on it. I yeah. think it was uh, Ernest Shackleton said um, that a man must choose a new goal immediately. The first one goes to ground. So uh, I, I had a about a half a day of of uh, sulking and feeling sorry for myself. <laughs> and then we just got to pick yourself up and move forward and set a new goal. Those dogs you were feeding, there are about 20 of them, uh, as I understand it. And as you mentioned, you know, this is not your day job. You're a high school teacher. So how have you been preparing with your team to ultimately tackle this long distance course? So in, in late September, we start getting nights that drop down uh, into the 40s. And that's when we start training five mile runs five times a week and then seven mile runs five times a week then 10 mile runs five times a week and you know those are actually the easier times uh, but you know come january february you're running 40 to 60 mile runs and so you're spending eight hours out on the trail so oftentimes what i would do is have dinner with my family and then as they're going to bed i'm heading out the door to spend the night out on the trail with the dogs when were you sleeping um, I would get I would get a little bit of sleep in here and there. Um, the the good thing about the longer runs is is you do get to take um, a, a couple you know three three days off a week instead of just one. This decision to cancel the race this year comes down to course conditions. That's what race officials are saying. You've been training on the the same trails that you ultimately had this race gone ahead would have been racing on. So what did you see on those trails? 
Yeah, uh, I, I want to start right off by saying that uh, I love the Can-Am Crown. I support the Can-Am Crown, and I support them in this decision. Um, th- that being said, um, you know, trail, trail conditions were, in, in my mind, they weren't unmanageable. They weren't unrunnable. But, um, you know, as one race official said to me, Jonathan, you've been doing this 25 years, but there's other mushers that don't have the experience that mm-hmm. you have. And but the, the big the big thing is, you know, you have the dog equivalents of a Formula One race car and a pickup truck. And um, the Formula One race car teams, they need really great conditions. And when they have great conditions, they're always going to beat teams like mine. They're very fast, but they're delicate as well. So um, I, I had wished that um, they would allow the, the racers to make the decision for themselves and for their teams based on what kind of teams that they have. But um, this race has been going a long time. They know what they're doing. And I'll also add, I'm not on the trail crew. And so they were probably seeing things out there that, that I am not privy to. What have you seen? You know, manageable, I know you said, the trails are from your perspective. Yeah. But what kinds of things have you seen that are different from years past? So from the towns to the restaurants, from the towns to the bars, um, the, the trails have taken a pounding because, of course, we're the only place with snow. So all the snowmobilers um, from New England have been coming here. And uh, and sometimes the Can-Am Crown runs on plowed roads, but, you know, the roads are, you know, dirt roads. They're frozen and they're hard and they have a, a crust of ice on them. So um, coming in and out of town would be really bad and, and running on any plowed roads would be really bad. And uh, whether it would be bad for the team or not depends on whether you're able to manage the speed of your team, you know, when there isn't enough trail for your brakes to grab into and for your drag to grab into to slow your team down. As we see weather patterns shift, the impact of climate change, milder winters, how do you recalibrate and and reassess in terms of the future of a sport that you love so much? Yeah, it's been a a problem, and uh, I'll illustrate it by telling you this story. In 1927, when my dogs, the ancestors of my dogs, came to Maine, they were running dog sled races in southern Maine, in Poland Spring, Maine. And uh, the owner of Poland Spring Resort there every year in the 1920s would put on a dog sled race 20 miles every day for three days in a row. I'm really good friends with the owner, uh, Cindy Robbins of Poland Spring Inn Resort, and we have talked for over a decade about how we'd love to revive um, that race, you know, from the 1920s at her resort. But every year it's just been, a, you know, it's, we can't even consider it. The, the snow conditions down there are not what they were 100 years ago. And that's absolute fact. You mentioned earlier in our conversation that, you know, you pick yourself up and you move on after you had that day or so to be disappointed. So what's next? So <laughs> um, we, we, we found the most pristine section of the Can-Am Crown uh, trail. And um, it looks like right now there's going to be eight mushers. Uh, we are um, throwing an impromptu fun run race together in the, in the logging village of Allagash out in the North Main Woods. And it's just going to be a 40-mile loop. Um, and uh, the same trail crews that were working for the entirety of the Can-Am are working on this trail for us. And we're going to go have a fun run on Saturday. We're shifting gears. I'm not going to qualify for the Iditarod now. Uh, the Canyon Crown was an Iditarod qualifier. I'm not going to make that in time mm-hmm. for next year. So 
we're going to run an expedition in Alaska next year. We're going to focus on that and um, going to be looking at times 50, minus 50 degree temperatures. So the opposite problem that we're having here. <laughs> well, Jonathan, thank you very much for your time. Good luck out there. Have a great day. Jonathan Hayes is a musher in St. David, Maine. That's where we reached him. We're all getting used to being watched almost everywhere we go, sort of. But Waterloo University students were surprised to discover that even the vending machines on campus have been keeping an eye on them. It turns out the machines were surreptitiously monitoring the faces of the students and noting the ages and genders of who was buying what. The company that makes the machine says the technology is mainly used to detect when a person is standing in front of a machine and that images are not stored, but that's not good enough for the university, which has ordered the machines removed. River Stanley is a Waterloo University student who broke the story for the campus journal Math News. We reached them in Waterloo. River, one of your peers, another student first noticed that, that something was off with these vending machines. How did they figure that out? I mean, the story really all started with a random Waterloo student just walking around campus at like 11 p.m. And they happened to discover an error on one of the vending machines. Uh, and this error on the screen read, Inventa.Vending.Spatial Recognition App has experienced an error. <laughs> and so like, the immediate question is, Sorry, what do you mean facial recognition app? This is a vending machine. So the the word gets out. The student tells you, uh, right? Yeah. So the the student makes a Reddit post, uh, just letting the entire community know, like, hey, what's up with this? And so the next day, people are start investigating, and we figure out uh, who the manufacturer is because it was just listed in the name of the error message. It's this company in Venda out of Switzerland. And we go to their website and find the sales brochure for their vending machine. And sure enough, it's sold as this intelligent vending machine that can provide demographic data analysis, providing the ages and genders of the users of the vending machine. The company that makes these machines has said no images are stored, that the technology is is really mainly used to detect the fact that someone is standing in front of the machine. How does that sit with you? Does that reassure you? Uh, No. (laughs) I mean, for a few reasons. Um, one is that there's been uh, there's been numerous statements, some of them conflicting. Uh, the initial one that Inventa provided to Math News was fairly clear and made a lot of sense. It said that yes, the yes, there is facial identification happening. They're collecting demographic data, which is allowed under European GDPR privacy legislation. Um, and in particular, they're saying that any computation is done only on the machine. And all that gets sent out is age and gender information. And so that makes sense. It's not good. It's not, it still violates Pipita, but that's, a, that's another whole story. But this idea that it actually doesn't serve as a camera at all and it's strictly a motion sensor doesn't make sense. There's easier, cheaper ways to do motion sensors than cameras that appear to link to a facial recognition app on the vending machine. So is the idea that this is, this is collecting all this information to find out who's buying which kinds of M&Ms? <laughs> yeah, basically, like that's, that seems to be the goal, is to provide more business data for them to uh, identify something about the demographics of the University of Waterloo, which it doesn't even make sense because that's easy information to find. I mean, it's a university campus. You know almost everyone is within like 18 to 25. 
gender demographics, we know that. It's basically public information. It's it doesn't it simply doesn't make sense to do or to to use such a inherently privacy invading tool to get demographics that are so easy to figure out. You guys did the digging and you went to university officials? Well so we started out by reaching to reaching out to the university officials on this, asking, Hey, what's up with these vending machines? And they had no idea. We reached out to the plant ops department, which really handles most of operations of the buildings on campus and various things within them. And like, they, they truly said, we have no responsibility over the vending machine. And I think that is a really core part of this and how this happened. So the University of Waterloo, basically as soon as the, as the story dropped, they said, we're looking into this. We're going to get them to disable this technology, and we're looking into removing the machine. They were caught just as off guard as everyone else. Then we reached out to Adaria Vending Services, the operator of the machines. It's a Canadian company just based out of Markham, to my understanding. They're the first ones to respond to us, and they gave us this response basically detailing that the vending machines um, were just being used as motion sensors, and that the facial recognition mm-hmm. didn't, it wasn't recognizing faces at all, and that, like, that didn't make sense. And then completely unprompted, like 12 hours later, they send us another response, this one from Inventa. And that was the one with all the clarifying details saying, sure, it is doing facial recognition, but it's fine. Don't worry about it. And we just didn't buy that. Now they're being removed, these machines. How long from the moment that you're, you're, this other student accidentally discovers what's going on to the removal? As far as I know, the machines have yet to be removed. Last I was on campus, they were still around. So the, the timeline was that uh, the first student finds the machines. A week later, Mass News publishes an article. A week later, that article and the story in general reaches CTV News. At that point, we got the first response from the University of Waterloo saying, we're going to remove these machines. They haven't done it yet. I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that they will. There's still loose threads, though. For example... If there was any data collected, where is it? In a very similar case, the Cadillac Fairview case in 2018, uh, Cadillac Fairview was found using demographic data collection technology. And CBC has covered this. People can find that coverage on our website as well. Exactly. And when Cadillac Fairview was investigated by the Canadian Privacy Commissioner, it was found that they were, do- they were doing the exact same things as Invenda has the ability to, and very likely did now. The Privacy Commissioner demanded that any data collected from their initiative be deleted. We haven't had that same response yet. And so that's a loose threat that's still out there. Sure, the machines are gone, but the data, we don't know. Well, River, more investigative reporting to come from you uh, and your colleagues, it sounds like. Maybe, maybe. Thanks for this, River. Thank you so much. We reached River Stanley in Waterloo, Ontario. In a lot of ways, Katrine LaRue's book, The Future, is actually about the past. Or more accurately, it's about what might have happened if the past had unfolded very differently. The novel is set in a version of Detroit that was never surrendered to the U.S. by its one-time French occupants. Oh, and orphaned and abandoned children have created an autonomous society there. Defending the book on Canada Reads is a journey into the past for its champion, too. 
Heather O'Neill is a writer herself. In 2007, her novel, Lullabies for Little Criminals, took the Canada Reads crown. And this time around, Ms. O'Neill is hoping she'll be able to win it for the future, which she calls, quote, the most magical response to Lord of the Flies, unquote. The Battle of the Books gets underway next week on CBC Radio. This week, we're bringing you readings from all the contenders. Here's Katrine LaRue. Perched on the large boulder, Fiji watches evening close around the camp. Humid air rises from the river. The sky transforms into shredded indigo and pink ribbons. Faces take on superhuman hues around the fires. At this time, every child looks like a hero, and every tree like the pillar of a palace. No one would imagine that a city of steel and fear surrounds them, just as no city dweller imagines this nest of freedom in the heart of the Rouge's huge park. They are safe, Fiji tells herself over and over. They are invisible. She closes her eyes, the sounds in the background like the loops in knitting, stitches that hold fast, hanging on to each other to create the fabric of habit, something predictable in the randomness of life in the woods. The fire that crackles, the girls who sputter in laughter as they trade potty humor, the creaking that tumbles from the treetops, her belly that gurgles and will only be indulged once everyone else has eaten. She opens her eyes. In the mauve light, the cloak of darkness is fanned out, shrouding the battered canoe that marks the center of camp, its hull dented as though it had fallen from the sky. Night settles in. Magic in Adidas stirred the contents of a pot, its aroma far-reaching, and the starving youngsters squirm as they hold out their bowls, their eyes beseeching. But the minute they catch sight of the frico, they'll start whining that they don't like sweet potatoes, beans, canned meat, stew. Farther along, a mini, a boy, cries from exhaustion, as does an older girl with a nosebleed. A rule of thumb in the ravine is that there are always one or two children crying, two or three laughing and fighting, half a dozen who are sleeping, a few emptying their intestines after having ingested unripe fruit or stagnant water, and one caught up in the throes of death. Their lives are short and magical, hard and full, and they are all governed by Fiji. She repeats her mantra, they are safe, they are invisible, clings to it actually, because after all this time as a camp's leader, there are two things that still keep her standing as tall as her spine will allow, omnipotence and responsibility. The greater the latter weighs on her, the more the former grows, like two loads that balance each other out to prevent a boat from capsizing. Katrine LaRue reading from her novel The Future, which was translated by Susan Uriu. The book is one of five titles that will go head-to-head in next week's Canada Reads debates here on CBC Radio, on CBC Television, and on CBC Gem. You're sitting on a calm, quiet riverbank in Myanmar. Gentle current laps against the shoreline and lulls you into a deep sleep. But near your dreaming head, beneath the tranquil waters, there is a cacophony of sound. 
That pulsating drumming is courtesy of one of the world's smallest fish, the Daniela cerebrum. Now, the tiny fish are found in streams across Myanmar. Not only are they small in size, averaging only 12 millimeters in length, they also have the smallest known brain of any vertebrate. But as you just heard, according to a new study published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, the Daniela cerebrum can somehow still produce sounds that exceed 140 decibels. For reference, that is the equivalent of a jackhammer, an ambulance, or a gunshot. Those little fish have some serious pipes, or gills. And the scientists were confused too until they used high-speed video to discover that the male fish have a small but mighty rib that lies next to their swim bladder. Using a special muscle, the fish releases the rib into a piece of cartilage, hitting its swim bladder and making that loud drumming sound. Let's hear it again. Impressive. Little guy's got rhythm. Scientists still haven't figured out exactly why the Daniela cerebrum makes those sounds, but hopefully this research will help drum up support for further study. It's something people often argue about, a debate we never seem to tire of, perhaps a question we'll never reach a consensus on. I speak, of course, of the taboo against ending a sentence with a preposition, as I just did repeatedly. Now, some of you didn't notice or care. Others cannot hear me right now because they are yelling at the radio or have fainted. And if you're among those who sees a terminal preposition as a grammatical sin, well, this might just be something to which you'll have to get used or something you'll have to get used to. At least that's the word from an authority on words, Merriam-Webster. The dictionary publisher recently posted a message to social media that read, it is permissible in English for a preposition to be what you end a sentence with. Peter Sokolowski is Merriam-Webster's editor-at-large. We reached him in Springfield, Massachusetts. Peter, you know that someone out there listening, many someones perhaps, uh, are not buying this. Uh, so speak to them directly. This is your chance to tell them why it is actually okay, in your view, to end a sentence with a preposition. It is because it's organic and it's natural. You know, there are phrases such as, uh, this is the first radio show I ever heard of, or a friend I went to college with, or... Uh, what is it made of, or uh, what's the money for, that kind of thing. Those are perfectly organic and natural ways to pose those questions. Are you and the team at, at uh, Merriam-Webster suggesting that this is okay in any context, formal writing, journalism, or does context matter here? Well, context always matters. It's true that because this is one of those superstitions or myths or bugaboos <laughs> that people have, that if it draws attention to your writing in a way that distracts from your message, then maybe you would avoid it. And, and the same goes for, for example, the infamous split infinitive, as in to boldly go where no man has gone before. And the two rules are parallel and similar in a different way, which is that they both reflect 
the standards of eloquence of the Latin language that was the highest standard in the 1500s and the 1600s, when these so-called rules were first posited. And that's why these um, so-called rules have been uh, perpetuated through the centuries. And if I was asked why we still have this this idea, it's because those uh, initial ideas about eloquence came from Latin grammarians who were writing about a Germanic language, which is English. And then those ideas were perpetuated by textbooks, school books throughout the centuries. And it wasn't until really the 20th century that we had a real science of linguistics that analyzed the language and said, you know, when we describe English as it is natural and organic, this is part of the language. Mm -hmm. Your website says now, quote, people who claim that a terminal preposition is wrong are clinging to an idea born in the 17th century, unquote, as you've been saying. But, you know, some might might be asking, why not cling to an idea even if it's old? Don't we need rules? Why not have a rule? Rules are important, particularly in grammar. Oh, absolutely. Well, absolutely. And of course, um, we need standards. We need mm -hmm. consistency. Uh, we need stability. At the same time, there are um, rules and then there are rules. Uh, what grammar truly is, is a description of the way that a language works. Uh, and what we've found with several of these so-called zombie rules or superstitions is that these are kind of prejudices that have n no effect on the comprehension of the language that we understand mm -hmm. perfectly well. If somebody says, what room is this key for? Um, it's perfectly understandable and it's perfectly clear. So we have to kind of separate our prejudices from the true organic nature of the language. Is there a rule that in the future another editor-in-chief talks about and says, no, you can, you can throw this out the window, it would make your skin crawl? <laughs> oh, you know, we all have linguistic prejudice. Uh, <laughs> and that's because we grow up in, you know, a certain region with a certain teacher, certain parents, certain accents. And so, of course, there are words... I don't know, the verb impact, I will die for your right to use impact as a verb, but I didn't grow up using it as a verb, so I don't. Okay, good to know. Do you feel that, that, that you're approaching your role as an editor at, at Merriam-Webster differently than, than people who've, who've held the position in the past, you know, generations ago? Uh, well, for generations, Merriam-Webster's been really well known as being a, a real descriptive dictionary. That is, our job is to tell the truth about words, to report like a journalist reports about the actual use of actual words. Um, and that includes adding new words to the dictionary and also, of course, reflecting the stability that we already talked about. Um, and in that sense, uh, I feel like I'm part of a grand tradition of uh, descriptive lexicography. Do you think, you know, going back to something you said earlier, the, these rules or these prejudices, as you've said, um, have been used as, as a form of gatekeeping? Of course. I mean, language is also a gatekeeper. Language separates us as much as it connects us. Accent or, or usage, in this case, are ways to simply judge others. In other words, you can simply say you're part of us or you're part of them. Um, and in some ways, it seems like uh, spelling, for example, which is notoriously difficult in English and often kind of arbitrary, um, is, is itself just kind of a shibboleth uh, that sort of proves in one case that I'm a person who, who knows this, but if you're correcting people in public, which sometimes we see on social media, for example, <laughs> it becomes possibly classist, 
uh, or possibly a judgment against someone else's intellect or education. And when language is used as a bat to hit other people with, I, I find uh, I find that offensive. I think we should use language to communicate. You want people to love language. We certainly do love it here. <laughs> Uh, I've noticed the Instagram game is is pretty strong. Why is it important for you and your team to have that kind of presence on social media? Sure. And for a long time on Twitter, uh, we have more than a million followers, uh, which is uh, just kind of thrilling that people uh, share our irrational love of the English language. And um, that goes for the the hard facts, uh, but also the great fun uh, that we have with many, many articles and videos. Our word of the day uh, gets a million um, subscribers uh, via email. And that just means people love sharing information about language, language history, etymology, and pronunciation. There's so much uh, that um, sort of unites language lovers. And so our dictionary website and the social media um, kind of engage people in ways that are beyond the definition. Thanks for this, Peter. It's always a treat. Thank you. Peter Sokolowski is the editor-at-large for Merriam-Webster. Springfield, Massachusetts is where we reached him at. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 after Your World Tonight. And you can, of course, also listen to our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or, of course, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.